This final vision that Daniel receives runs from the beginning of chapter 10 till chapter 12, verse 13. As such, we find ourselves in the middle of this final vision. So let me invite you, if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and open up to Daniel chapter 11. We're going to call this section the final vision, part 3. Our goal is to get through chapter 11, verse 20. And by God's grace, we'll pick back up here next Sunday at chapter 11, verse 21 which will be a part of uh, part four, and we will work through the end of the chapter. Now, getting our bearings in the text this morning, I think it would be helpful to make a general comment about what we're going to exposit in chapter 11. Now, this might seem too rudimentary, but uh, humor me for just a moment. Daniel 11 is prophecy. And by prophecy, I mean God revealing to his prophets future events. And again, admittedly, this does seem a bit elementary, right? (laughs) To say that something in the book of Daniel is prophecy is a bit like saying the sky is blue or Tuesdays are for tacos Um, These are obvious facts about our existence, yes? Same thing with Daniel 11. Daniel 11 is prophecy. Of course, as to be expected, there are those who would like to dispute that. They would say there is no way that Daniel 11 gives predictive prophecy because it's just too accurate in the details, And my response to that is first to say they're right about something. Daniel 11 is very detailed um, in the way it presents future events, covering some 400 years of human history from the reign of King Cyrus in Persia to the fall of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. But as we'll see, Daniel's vision in chapter 11 will reach even into the future during the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, which we learned about in chapter 9. So it is true that Daniel gives a detailed description of certain future events in Daniel chapter 11. But the if-then argument that says, if Daniel 11 gives too detailed a description of events, then it can't be predictive, is missing a very vital component. What is that component? Well, the missing component is God. If you take God out of the equation, then yeah, you have to resort to the conclusion that what we have in Daniel is, quote, prophecy after the fact. In other words, what really happened is that years after Daniel died and the history had already played out, an editor came along and inserted into the book of Daniel the historical events of the last 400 years and presented it as prophecy. At the very least, this seems a little bit disingenuous, doesn't it? Prophecy after the fact, which, by the way, is a little bit like saying a round square. There is no such thing as prophecy after the fact. What we have instead is a sovereign God of the universe who is all-knowing, revealing future things to his prophet Daniel. 
And I have no problem with that. And I don't think you do either. We have no problem with believing in a God who knows all things. Amen. So if he wants to give some detailed information to his prophet Daniel, about 400 plus years of future events, he can certainly do that. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, just to rehearse what the scripture says about our God. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. This is our God. Amen. Going through Daniel 11, 1 through 20. We are going to see God reveal to Daniel the future of kings and Persia and Greece, verses 1 through 4, and the future of kings in Egypt and Syria from verses 5 through 20. That will be the direction we're headed this morning. I think it's a way that this passage is laid out for us in terms of an outline. So let's begin with the kings of Persia. In Greece, take a look at verse 1. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, it's important to notice right off the bat that the word and occurs at the beginning of this verse. That and means that we have a continuation with the previous material. And what continues is this dialogue between Daniel and this one who has the appearance of a man. This one who has the appearance of a man, we saw from last week's text, was engaged in a real spiritual conflict. We saw in verse 20 that he was engaged in a fight against the prince of Persia. And when he got done with that, he moved on to the prince of Greece. And we should take it. As Pastor Ben pointed out last week, that these princes are references to fallen angels. And these fallen angels influence the leaders of countries. This is fascinating stuff. But not fascinating like um, I watched a science fiction movie and I was fascinated by the fictional characters that were in that movie. Not fascinating like that, but fascinating like there is a real spiritual battle going on in the heavenly places that we can't see with our physical eyes. It's actually factually happening. And just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not going on. Then back to verse 1 of Daniel 11, we read, And as for me, Me being this one having the appearance of a man. In the first year of Darius the Mede, and this would have been 539 B.C., I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now this him here is likely a reference to the angel Michael back in verse 21, who as the commentator Stephen Miller said in his commentary on Daniel, who I think is right on this, quote, Michael's special assignment was to assist and protect the nation Israel. So that's the particular assignment that Michael has as we read the scripture. 
So taken together then with verse 1 of chapter 11, this one having the appearance of a man was helping Michael in fighting for the protection of Israel. And after he had finished his help for Michael, he turns his attention to giving this uh, vision to Daniel. Verse 2 begins this vision, and it says, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Let's note here, we have three more kings that arise in Persia. This means three more kings in addition to the king that preceded the three kings. And that king who preceded the three kings was King Cyrus, or Cambyses, who ruled in Persia from 530 B.C. to 522 B.C. Now, we should not confuse this king with the king Cyrus, who let the Israelites return to their land after their exile. The King Cyrus that Daniel 11.2 references is the King Cyrus that came after King Cyrus. Clear as mud, right? (laughs) Well, let's keep moving. The three kings that are mentioned here, kings that followed King Cyrus, were the kings of Smyrtus of 522 B.C., Darius Hystaspus I of 522 B.C., to 486 B.C., and the fourth most distinguished king who became strong, as the text says, through his riches and engaged in intense warfare with Greece was the king called Xerxes. I'm sure you've heard of Xerxes before. And I think this is likely the same king who is called Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. Uh, Ahasuerus being the Aramaic rendition of the Greek name Xerxes. And uh, what makes this interesting is that in the book of Esther, if you uh, have read through the book and noted some things, you realize there's no mention of God in the book of Esther. Um, But certainly you can see the fingerprints of God all over the book as he's working providentially to bring about the preservation of his people. And just to just summarize that book, because it's relevant to what we're talking about. In that book, the book of Esther, he's using his servants, Mordecai and Esther, to stand up for God's people. And you know the phrase for such a time as this. A time at which the existence of the Jewish people is in jeopardy. But God uses Esther, who approached the king Xerxes, and influenced him to bring about the preservation of the Jewish people. It's remarkable. It's a beautiful story. And, of course, Daniel was told about this Xerxes some 80 years before he rose to power. He was told that Xerxes would be a man of wealth and power, and he would be able to consolidate his power, which would result in the historical invasion of Greece. But in the course of uh, history, his decisive defeat at the Battle of Salamis in 480 B.C. would bring an end to his triumph. And this ends the portion of the prophecy in Daniel 11 that Daniel receives regarding the kings of Persia. Okay? So, full stop, period. We're moving on. The next prophecy has to do with Greece. And in particular, there's this mighty king in Greece that Daniel talks about. We read in verse 3, note, Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Now, to see if you're still listening, 
Uh, what well-known king of Greece conquered most of the known world during the 4th century B.C.? Remember your history? What do we have? I think I heard an Alexander the Great. Ding, ding, ding. Right over here. They win. Was it the Ockers or the Hafers? Oh, it's them back there. Ockers. Okay, all right. All right. That's right. Alexander the Great. That's correct. This is who Daniel is referring to here in this prophecy. Pretty fascinating. One of the most influential figures in human history. Uh, and just to brush you up, because I know you want a little brush up on your Alexander the Great history. Uh, we can start with the fact that Daniel, I'm sorry, Daniel, Alexander's dad was none other than Philip of Macedon. Uh, Philip of Macedon was very serious about war. Uh, war was his life. And his thirst for war led him to conquer most of Greece in 338 B.C. But he had a vision, and it involved the desire to conquer Persia and to Hellenize people. Now, as far as the ego of a king goes, it doesn't get much more hefty than that. Uh, conquer the present world empire and make everybody like himself. Uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty hefty ego. But that's what Philip of Macedon wanted to do. And as it turned out, his son Alexander had all the right tools and all the right training to make that happen. Now, what do I mean? I mean that Alexander was educated under none other than the Greek philosopher Aristotle. This edu education began at the age of 13. So coupled with his dad's influence in his life, he was also trained to use his mind. And at the age of 20... Uh, he was ready to take the throne and go to, the, go to war, naturally, right, age of 20. Our 20-year-olds our, our are ripe and ready to take over the world when they're 20, just like Alexander the Great. I was just joking there, tongue-in-cheek. Um, so here is this 20-year-old, right, who takes the throne, and he immediately consolidates power in Greece, and then he goes into conquest with his army. While a lot could be said about his conquests, obviously, if you look up here at this map, you could follow the red line, and those are the battles that he led his troops into to conquer uh, this area at that time. But what I want to do for the next couple of moments is just highlight a couple of things that are relevant to biblical history. Uh, the first is that Alexander the Great led his troops to victory against the Persians at the Granicus River in 334 B.C. and at Issus in 333 B.C. And if so, if you look at the, the map over here where it starts, sort of on the left upper side, what Alexander does is he takes his troops across the, um, this, this river here, comes to Granicus, defeats the Persians, comes back, back around through Asia Minor down into Issus. And um, Alexander brought his troops after this battle at Issus into Tyre, uh, which if you're familiar with your uh, biblical history maps, uh, Tyre is about midway up the Mediterranean Sea right there on the edge of that land. And uh, Tyre is significant because it's just north of what uh, nation? Israel. Okay, so after defeating Tyre... Alexander passes through Israel on his way to defeat Egypt. Okay, and you'll notice Egypt down there at the south. And as he moves through Israel, he comes to the city of Jerusalem. 
all right? And we have preserved for us what happened when Alexander and his army came to Jerusalem in the first century A.D. writings of the Jewish historian named Josephus, who wrote about Jewish history. And this is what he records. And when he, Alexander, understood that he was not far from the city, he went out in procession with the priests and the multitudes of the citizens. For Alexander, when he saw the multitude at a distance in white garments, while the priest stood clothed with fine linen, and the high priest in purple and scarlet clothing, with his mitre on his head having the golden plate on which the name of God was engraved, he approached by himself and adored that name and first saluted the high priest. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Now, um, I don't think we need to take from this that Alexander became a believer, okay? Um, I think that what we need to take from this in the larger context of how the kings at this time and nations at this time were subduing other nations is that within the context of other nations, like, say, for example, Babylon, which Babylon, we read early on in the book of Daniel, did not tolerate other religions, Actually, the Persians, though, and the the Grecians, they tolerated other religions. And so it's not unlikely to see a guy like Alexander come into Jerusalem and do what he did here. To at least honor the local religious assembly. Okay? So I think that's what's going on here. Now, there's another passage in this Josephus context that's really interesting. And I want to show it to you. And I sure hope that this is historical because this would be really cool. But it says, and when he went into the temple, he offered sacrifice to God according to the high priest's direction and magnificently treated both the high priest and the priests. And when the book of Daniel was showed to him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empires of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person intended. That would be really cool, right, if that actually happened. Now, I have to be transparent about this because scholars will debate um, whether this bit about Alexander seeing the book of Daniel is historically accurate. Um, And I think that you should just be aware of that, all right? Uh, And this last week, I was looking through my notes for a seminary class I took that was dealing with this event, and uh, I wrote down what the professor said, quote, possibly sees the book of Daniel. So um, I guess he was unsure about the historicity of of this quote from Josephus. Now, what should we say about this? And and you can go home and if you want to do your homework on this and and maybe give me your thoughts about it later because I I was looking through it and trying to figure out if it was um, actually historical. But let's just say this. What what should we say about whether it's true or not? Well, whether Alexander saw the book of Daniel or not, is irrelevant to our faith. Our faith is based on the authority of the Scripture, right? And what Scripture records for us is that this mighty king, Alexander, was going to come into human history and rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And he will be used for God's purposes, then God will move him off the scene. That's what the Word of God tells us, right? but I really hope that this is true. 
Now, some of the things we can say about the conquest of Alexander the Great are that the Jews were allowed to worship freely uh, without persecution during his reign. And under Alexander the Great, the process of Hellenization continued. Uh, This meant that the Greek culture and language would dominate most of the world or the known world. And this would be very advantageous, advantageous as it prepared the way for the gospel to go forth in a language that most people could understand. Namely, uh, the language of Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament was originally written in. So, uh, very significant what God used this king to accomplish, right? And you can see God's fingerprints all over this as well. God moving kings and kingdoms to prepare the world for the coming of his son and the hearing of the good news of salvation. This is beautiful. Well, Alexander would die at the age of 32. And there are various legends surrounding how he died, but died he did. And after he came, a number of successors came in his place. And we read about them in Daniel 11.4. Note the text here. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. A couple things to note here from this verse. Uh, The first is that the empire which Alexander built would not go, quote, to his posterity. Uh, While history tells us Alexander did have two sons, uh, they were murdered before they were able to continue the empire that Alexander built. The second thing to note from this verse is that instead of the kingdom going to his posterity, Alexander's kingdom will, quote, be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. This expression, the four winds of heaven, refers to four generals of Alexander's who would divide the kingdom. Those kings were Ptolemy, Seleucus, Cassander, and Lysimachus. Two of these kings and their dynasties will become the focus of the vision that Daniel received in verses 5 through 20. So let's turn our attention there. And this is the second section of Daniel's vision in chapter 11, which deals with the kings of Egypt and Syria. Now, I think it would be helpful uh, to get sort of a 30,000 foot view to these verses and establish some terminology. Otherwise, as we go through it, I think it will be a little bit confusing. So let's just do that for just a brief moment. In verses 5 through 20, we have repeated mention of king of the south and king of the north. So follow me here. Look at verse 5. We read at verse 5, the king of the south. And you might have to look at your your scriptures in front of you. And then look at verse 6. The king of the south shall come to the king of the north. And then look at the end of verse 7, the king of the north. And then look at verse 11, the king of the south. So that will continue throughout this section. And and there are a few things to note from those observations we made that will help us understand what's going on here. The first thing to note is that when the north is mentioned, okay, when you see the word north, that refers to what's called the Seleucid Empire or uh, the kingdom of Syria. 
Okay, so north equals Seleucid Empire or Syria. Uh, This empire is named after the king Seleucus, one of the four generals that divided Alexander's empire. So that's the first thing to note. The second thing to note is that when the south is mentioned, that refers to what's called the Ptolemaic Empire or the kingdom of Egypt. So south equals Ptolemaic Empire or Egypt. And this empire is named after the king Ptolemy, another one of the four generals that divided Alexander's empire. So that's the second thing to note. The third thing to note is that when Daniel mentions the king of either of these empires, he's referring to whatever king is reigning in the empire at that time. So that's the 30,000-foot acclamation of these verses and the terminology in them. So let's look at the prophecies of these empires and get the details of the conflicts that will take place between them. Okay? Here we have in verse 5 the words, Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. And his authority shall be a great authority. This king of the south is a reference to Ptolemy Soter I, who ruled in Egypt, that is the Ptolemaic Empire, during the years 323 B.C. to 283 B.C., After a period of about seven years, Ptolemy Soter I is joined by a former general of Alexander, Seleucus Nicator I, who becomes one of his princes, just as verse 5 says. And the reason Seleucus joined Ptolemy was because while Seleucus was back in Babylon ruling there, a general named Antigonus came into Babylon and took over. This forced Seleucus out of Babylon, so he bounced on over to Ptolemy and ruled as a prince under him. And apparently, the uh, busted-up king rehabilitation program in Egypt was pretty good because over the course of four years, he uh, uh, got his groove back. And when Antigonus back in Babylon was defeated at a battle in Gaza in 312 B.C., Seleucus gave Ptolemy uh, the peace sign and went back to Babylon to take over. Okay? And in and, and modern colloquial expression, I'm a youth pastor, he gave him the deuce. All right? And then after assuming his throne, he made quick work of, get this, Babylon, Syria, and Media consolidating massive world empires under a Seleucid empire, which, of course, was named after him. Uh, So it was just as revealed to Daniel. Seleucid's authority shall be a great authority. Okay? You guys following along? Good. Now, with the empire table set, because that's what's happening here, is a prophecy about these empires being set up. Let's watch what happens here. In verse 6, we read, after some years. So we've got some time that has passed since the prophecies of verse 5. And there are two new sheriffs in town in the north and in the south. Uh, In the south, we have Ptolemy Philadelphus II. And in the north, we have Antiochus Theos II, who ruled after an intermediary king, Antiochus Soter I. 
Uh, and maybe if I could just offer just a brief, a brief word about these um, surnames that these kings either give themselves or are ascribed to them. Uh, Antiochus II, Theos, Theos means God. So he had a pretty high view of himself. Uh, and then Ptolemy Soter, Soter means Savior. So he's also got a pretty high view of himself as well. So again, after some years, here at verse 6, they shall make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south, whose name was Berenike, and if you're looking for a name for a girl, that's probably a decent one. Uh, or maybe not after we learn what, what's going on here. She shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. Now, that's a marital agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, meaning she's going to die. And he and his arm shall not endure, meaning he's going to die. But she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. Now, history records the way this played out in terms that Ptolemy II gave a peace offering to Seleucus II. That peace offering was his daughter, Berenike, who would be a bride for Antiochus II. Well, the fact was Antiochus II already had a wife named Laodice, and they had two sons who were successors to his throne. He, made, um, he had it made, at least seems like from the standpoint of carrying on his legacy in the Seleucid Empire, but apparently that was not enough for him. Uh, he still really wanted to possess, possess the territory of Egypt. So he got the tactical idea in his mind, I'm going to boot out my current wife, disinherit my sons, marry Berenike, and have some sons with her who will become heirs to the throne in Egypt. All right? Uh, seemed like a good idea in his mind. And as history records, he was successful in kicking that can down the road, at least for a little distance. Uh, but at some point, uh, Laodice found out about his intentions. Yeah, she, she caught wind of it, and obviously she wasn't too happy about it. So she put together a little plan of her own that resulted in the murder of Berenike, some of her attendants, and Antiochus II, as was prophesied in Daniel 11.6. And there was probably a little poison involved in this, from what I read. And history will tell us that after the death of her husband, Laodice will put in his place their son, Seleucus Callinicus II. Okay? But in terms of how the prophecy continues to develop, uh, we continue to follow the reference point of Berenike. You'll notice as we move on here. Um, picking up in verse 7, we read... And from a branch from her roots, that is the family of Berenike, one shall arise in his place. Okay, so this is going to be the, the name of this individual, Ptolemy Euergetes III, taking over for his father Ptolemy Philadelphus II as king in Egypt. And the text says, he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. 
And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. And in the actual fulfillment of this prophecy, the reason that he refrains from attacking Syria is because a peace treaty was made between the two kings. And in in verse 9 we read, Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Well, sometime after this retreat that Daniel's vision talks about in verse 9, in the words of returning to his own land, which you need to recognize that that is what is being referenced here by returning to his own land. This is a retreat. Well, Seleucus II dies. And the year of his death is 226 B.C. In that same year, his sons take over in what appears to be a co-regency, at least for some time, the sons are Seleucus Soter III and Antiochus the Great the Third. Both kings are referenced in verse 10, which is where we jump back in here in the prophetic vision to Daniel. And we read this, His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Now, as this verse indicates, these two brothers would be successful in waging war and, of course, growing their armies. But not long into their co-regency, Seleucus was murdered, leaving Antiochus III to himself. And he would have some uh, very significant success despite being without his brother. Now, meanwhile, on the other side of the pond the latest king of Egypt, who is Ptolemy Philopater IV, is noticing the success of Antiochus III. And uh, we can say that he becomes something like a disturbed hornet, as verse 11 says. Then the king of the south, this is Ptolemy Philopater IV, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a multitude... Uh, but, or and, it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted. And that's a pretty, uh, pretty significant uh, and regular thing we see in the book of Daniel, right? Uh, king's heart exalted. And he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. Okay? Uh, In other words, Ptolemy IV is going to administer a hefty defeat of Antiochus III, leaving him with a loss of tens of thousands of troops. But notice the little tag here at the end, but he shall not prevail. The idea being his success is not going to last long. Now, why, we may ask? Well, because he's going to die, which is also a regular occurrence of kings, dying, And Antiochus III will take advantage of the political insecurity that his death creates in Egypt. And as we see in verse 13, Antiochus III will again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. Okay? Did you catch all that? You got it locked in? You memorized now what we just went through? Now, since verse 5, we've had a pretty consistent range of characters, right? Uh, What I mean is that the characters have ranged from those associated with the Ptolemaic Empire 
uh, to those associated with the uh, Seleucid Empire. We haven't heard anything about other people from other countries or nations getting involved, right? And though we might have expected it, we haven't heard anything about Israel. Uh, where is the explicit mention of the people of Israel? Well, I'm, I'm glad that you asked that question. I'm, I know you were asking it. Because at the start of verse 14, here comes some of the Israelites. All right, And historically, just a historical note, the reason they start getting involved was, um, and this will not come as any surprise, because of heavy taxation. All right? As usual, when governments start dipping their, their greedy hands into people's pockets, then it's go time, right? And, of course, that's what's going to happen with the Israelites. Look at verse 14. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, who after Ptolemy IV was Ptolemy Epiphanes V. And catch this, and the violent among your own people, that's the people of Israel, shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Now, the historical situation during the fulfillment of this prophecy is that Israel is being severely taxed by a people known as the Tobiads. And the Tobiads were on the friendly with Egypt. So, thinking that it would be a more desirable option to be subjects of Syria, some of the Israelites sided with Antiochus III in an attack against Ptolemy V. But as the prophecy says and history goes, the Israelites siding with Antiochus III would prove to be unsuccessful. They would be defeated. Now, from the standpoint of this ongoing conflict between the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire, the balance of power is about to tip heavily in the scales of the Seleucid Empire. Verse 15 says, then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land, which is a reference to Israel, with destruction in his hand. Okay? Uh, this reference to the glorious land, this is huge. In recognition that we're here looking at a reference to Israel. And from the standpoint of history, the Israelites are going to be given over to the Seleucid Empire. And as history will play out, Israel will be under Syrian dominance until 63 BC when Rome will take over. And, of course, that would be the Israel that our Lord Jesus was born into, a people under Roman rule. But before that, they were, for a great deal of time, under the Seleucid Empire. Okay? And uh, we read here about Antiochus III in verse 17. And uh, he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. This is a reference to the alliance that Antiochus III subjected Egypt to uphold. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Now, this is kind of like what we saw earlier with an attempted empire takeover through marriage. 
In this case, Antiochus III gave Ptolemy V his daughter in hopes that they would have kids and those kids would ascend the throne in Egypt, thus increasing Antiochus's power. But it turned out his plan was a bust. His daughter, whose name was Cleopatra, not to be confused with the Cleopatra of the Mark Antony Julius Caesar uh, thing, well, she ended up falling in love with Ptolemy V. So Antiochus's plans fell through. And that sounds pretty familiar by now, right? King tries to hatch some devious plan and it's a bust. But that's just strike one, okay, as we work through this king. Look at verse 18. Afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Strike two. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him, then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Strike three. Okay? And in case you're wondering, strike three means he did. All right? uh, he did, and the way he got dead was he tried to steal some valuable items from a temple in Susa, and a bunch of upset people there murdered him. Okay? Now his son, Seleucus Philopater IV, who succeeded him, he got it in his mind that it would be a good idea to do the same thing that his dad did when it came to paying the same tribute amount to Rome. Which, by the way, you need to know that the king did that. He looted the temple so that he could pay Rome because Rome had a heavy taxation upon them. So what we know from history is that this king, following the footsteps of his dad, he sent a tax collector by the name of Heliodorus to go plunder the temple in Jerusalem and to pay Rome with the plunder. But as Jewish historians would record, Heliodorus had a dream, and in the dream he was warned that he shouldn't do that. So in a terrified state, he went back home and ended up slipping the king a little poison. Um, and that's how Seleucus Philopater IV dies. As the text says, neither in anger nor in battle. There at the end of verse 20. But with a little poison given to him by a man he sent to do harm against Israel. Okay. Um, so what's the point? Uh, what's the big takeaway here? I mean... Um, I think there's no question in my mind that at the very least we learn from this passage what Daniel recorded back in Daniel chapter 2. And that is that God removes kings and he sets up kings. That is without a question a truth to recognize in the details of this vision. Our God is sovereign. And in his providence he raises up powerful kings to carry out his ultimate agenda. And then he moves them on. That is our God. But I think there's more to this passage. The raising up of kings and removing of kings we saw teaches us something about what I'm going to call the jelloey form of worldly power. <laughs> I got a laugh from James over here. So all of these, all of these kings thought that their scheming and deceiving and lusting after power would give them something solid. But instead, once they grabbed a hold of their power, it fell right through their hands. 
One commentator on Daniel, Del Ralph Davis, is helpful in this. He says, from Xerxes to Seleucus IV, we have an overflowing dossier of lies and schemes and conspiracies, of victories and disasters and tragedies, of the never-ending hurly-burly confusion of wars and political turmoil. But the text doesn't merely want us to hear the racket, but to see the futility of it. I can't help but be reminded of the refrain in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. No matter what a man may do, apart from God, his life is meaningless. He may have a beautiful family, a great job, lots of money, vast amounts of knowledge, endless friends, the finer things in life. He may have it all, but if he doesn't have Christ, he has nothing Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But if a man possesses Christ, he possesses everything. And no matter what he does or what he has in life, it doesn't matter. All that he does and all that he has is for Christ. It's like what Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I think we're reminded from a passage like this this morning to say, to ourselves, and for me to say to myself, am I investing in the things that are going to last? Because many men have come and gone. They've sought riches, they've sought wealth, and they've sought power. All for the sake of gaining their own name. And by the way, did you notice from our passage, not a single name was mentioned? And I think that's for a reason. Because it's not about the names of these people, but it is about a singular name, and his name is Jesus. And at the name of Jesus, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And brothers and sisters, that's the kingdom that we're living for, right? And I think this passage should challenge us and remind us to think about everything in our lives from the moment we wake up to the moment we wake up the next day. Are we living for the things that matter? And if we live for Christ, the things that we're living for will last through all of eternity. But what these folks were living for were things that are going to pass away. And so we're challenged by this passage, aren't we? Am I living for Christ? Am I investing my life in the things that are going to outlive me and go with me to eternity? You know, I remind us, just as we saw with these kings, there's a start date to their reign and then there's an end date. You know, we have a start date to our life and an end date, right? You go out to a tomb and you look at the tombstone. So-and-so lived, birthed this age, died at this age, and there's a little dash in between that, right? And what we do for Christ in between those two dates, what represents that dash is what's going to really matter and most men that have poured into things of this world and tried to accumulate wealth for themselves, they know and we know as well that when we show up to their funerals that the hearse is driving them to put them in the ground and there's no U-Haul that's behind them. It's because we don't take our stuff with us. And what really matters is pouring into the things that God wants us to pour into, making disciples, evangelizing the lost, loving the church doing the things that Christ called us to do, and that'll last. Amen? Let's double down on our efforts this morning to do that. Let's pray. Father.